So today we continue in the book of James, and we'll be in James chapter 1 and verses 5 to 8 this morning. James 1, 5 to 8, and turn there with me. And in the book of 1 Samuel, uh, as David is still fleeing from Saul, he sends his men to entreat of a very wealthy man uh, for some provision, for some resources. And the reason he sends uh, his men to this particular man, whose name is Nabal, and that's important in a little bit, uh, Nabal, uh, is because his shepherds, uh, Nabal's shepherds, were protected by David's men. Uh, the shepherds kind of intermingled among David's troops, and, and they provided protection and didn't take anything from them. Uh, you know, as the the thought was, that, at least certainly from King Saul, this would have been the you know, the message you would have seen on uh, Israeli state uh, propaganda TV, if there were such a thing back in the day, right? King Saul would have said, David and his men are a bunch of rabble. They're evil. They're, they're insurgents. They need to be put down. Uh, but David's men showed themselves to be true and just and kind to uh, Nabal's shepherds and his flocks. And so as they go, they request it. Uh, but Nabal rejects it. Nabal says, who is David? Uh, and, and he kind of even suggests there, if you read the passage, uh, kind of like there's always somebody revolting against his master and David's just another rabble, rabble rouser. Uh, so, so Nabal rejects David's request. David hears about it and he's enraged. He's, he is mad uh, he, because of this in hospitality of this man, because that's really what it is. You're, you're talking about a culture that is, uh, that hospitality is so integral, so important. And Nabal has shown himself to be inhospitable, unkind, and did not return the kindness of David. Uh, and so David takes up the sword. He gathers his men and he is going to put an end to Nabal and his family. He will show him. But before David is able to carry out this plan, Nabal's wife hears about it from uh, the other men, uh, her servants, uh, his her husband's servants, and she gathers together the resources, gathers together the supplies, and goes out to intercept David before he is able to carry out this action. And so in 1 Samuel 25, verses 23 through 26, we see this interaction between Abigail, Nabal's wife, and David. And there is a, uh, there is a relation to our passage today. We'll get there. First uh, Samuel 25, 23 to 26. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me, my Lord, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. Uh, so, if we look at the meaning of Nabal's name, it, it does mean fool. His name means fool. 
also that's kind of a his parents named him that so you know you want to know the story behind that uh but anyways that so the irony of this passage right is that nabal's name means fool and nabal acts like a fool he lives up to his name as his name is so he is this man nabal had no wisdom he had no wisdom because if he had wisdom, he would have seen that the hand of the Lord was with David, not with Saul. He would have seen and understood that David's kindness to his own shepherds put something of a requirement upon him to show some sense of hospitality to David and his men. So are you enable? Or are you wise and discerning like Solomon? What should you do if you find yourself more like Nabal than Solomon? Pray. And so what I want us to see today from our passage is that the all-wise God gives wisdom to those who ask in faith. The all-wise God gives wisdom to those who ask in faith. So let us turn to our passage today and let us see how James instructs us on how to obtain Wisdom. Here it is. You want to know how to obtain wisdom. You want to know how to be wise and discerning. Do you have decisions that you need to make? Do you have situations and circumstances you need to face and need to know how to face them? Here's the answer. Verse 5 of James 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And this is the word of the Lord. Remember, James is writing to Jewish Christians in and around the area of Palestine and Syria. And these believers have been in the midst of a trial. Maybe the particularities of the trial may be something to do with poverty, uh, the famine and issues that crop up there uh, in that in that region and during that time. And the question for these churches, the question for these Christians is how will they remain faithful in the midst of trials? Well, James here in our passage today gives us the answer. Wisdom. It is wisdom. And we come to the issue of wisdom, especially in Jewish context, right? We come to a issue that has a lot of history behind it. What do we know about wisdom from the Old Testament? We have the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Job, right? We have wisdom literature in the Old Testament, We have all sorts of wisdom literature. And not only within the Bible, but also outside of the Bible, you have different wisdom, Jewish wisdom literature. And if you follow the commentators, they kind of point out some of these uh, outside of the Bible uh, literature, outside of the Bible books and letters that James is probably actually relying on as he as he instructs us. Uh, And so he's interacting with this. Jewish wisdom literature. He's not ignorant of them, but he adapts them into uh, what what concerns him for these churches. And so as we turn to our passage, as we consider it this morning, let's first see that in this issue of wisdom, ask and received. Ask and received. And 
That's from verse 5, right? Ask and received. And he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And here we see James doing that, that method of connecting passages, even if he doesn't segue directly, even if he is not ex- extending his, like, here's how I'm getting to where I'm going. Uh, he does that connecting part by the word lacks. If you look at the end of verse 4, he says, lacking in nothing. And then he begins, verse 5, if any of you lacks. Right, so this is his method of connecting. We'll see it as we go on. And what is lacking uh, here? What, what is he talking about lacking? What is, what is it that we are in need of? And it's wisdom. And now it behooves us to get a grasp of what is wisdom? What does wisdom mean? You know, a secular definition might be something like it's the application of knowledge. I don't know if you've ever heard that definition before. Right? Knowledge is knowing things. But wisdom is being able to do something with that knowledge. There are people who know lots of things who are very, very much foolish. Right. So it's not just that knowledge is is wisdom. It's not. Uh, uh, But again, in a secular context, we might think the application of knowledge Um, in a a biblical context. As we think about wisdom, uh, the knowledge that we have is not just about uh, scientific things. It's not just about chemistry or biology. Uh, it is uh, about God. We could look at Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Or Job 28.28. 28. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Very similar, right? Or how about Psalm 111.10? Psalm 111.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Right. So one of the things we see throughout the scripture is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And to stay away from evil, to have a knowledge of the Holy One, to understand right from wrong, that is insight. Right. That's understanding. So variously, we have this link between wisdom and fearing, revering the Lord, right? When we talk about the fear of the Lord, we're not just merely talking about being afraid of God. We're talking about revering God, holding him as holy. So wisdom here is linked with right living. It is using knowledge to fulfill our God-given purpose of worship, to, to love him and enjoy him forever, to know him and to worship him. In the context here in the book of James, wisdom is the means by which we will stand fast. Right, The passage right before this, in verse 2, we see, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. How is it that we will stand the trial? Wisdom. That's what James is doing, right? This issue of wisdom, he isn't just veering off on on a tangent here. Uh, as he talks about trials. He isn't like, I'm talking about trials, now I'm going to pop over here and talk about wisdom. No, those two are linked. We remain steadfast in the midst of trials. We walk a faithful life by wisdom. Uh, Calvin, in his commentary in this passage, actually ties it uh, immediately with what comes before in this way. He says, 
the ability for us to count it all joy when we enter trials, the ability for us to believe, understand, and to actually have joy in the midst of trials takes wisdom. Right? So if we, if we don't even understand how it's possible that we could count trials as joy, then what James is instructing us to do is to get wisdom. Because if we have wisdom, we'll understand that. But as we think of this more broadly, as we think of it to, to accomplish, to encompass all of life's situations, and what does James teach here? He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, go and study a book. Go, go to your professor at school. Go to academic advising. Go to a lawyer. We might find wisdom in those places. But what does James instruct us? He says, let us ask God. Let us go to God. We're called to go to God and ask of Him that which is from Him. We're called to go to the one who is all wise. Paul writes of God's wisdom is such that in 1 Corinthians one twenty five. For the foolishness of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul says if if we could even say that God has any foolishness, the foolishness of God is more wisdom than all of the wisdom of men. Put all the wisest men together, group them up, put them in one pile, still doesn't even meet to the foolishness of God. So we go to God, who is all wise. Uh, Paul, in that passage in 1 Corinthians, uh, links that especially to the foolishness of the cross and Christ being the very wisdom of God. God is all wise, so we go to the source, right? We go to the source. Again, we could seek wisdom from other people in this world, but they're lesser. You could come to me and try and pick my brain and get wisdom, but the only wisdom I have is the wisdom from His Word, right? We have to go to God. We go to the source and we ask, right? It's not that it's wrong to maybe ask for help from other people to understand situation and to apply situation. That's what counselors are for, right? That's what biblical counseling is about, is how can I understand the situation in the context of the Bible? We go to people who maybe know more than we do in the hopes that they can apply that knowledge better than we can do. It's not wrong. I'm not saying don't do that. But maybe we should first try and go to God and ask Him for wisdom and then seek uh, help from others. Uh, seeking wisdom from this world is a little bit like going to a restaurant and looking at pictures of the food, but never ordering anything. It may be good to look at, but you won't be satisfied. And notice here, so, so he says, go to God and ask. And as we think about that, right, as we think about that, as we think about going to God and asking, we may hesitate and say, but God is, God is so great. God is so so great, and surely He has other things to do. 
Surely he has better things to do than to answer my request for wisdom. Maybe if I go to him and ask him, he'll scoff at me. He'll say, you stupid little stupid. You don't know that already? What does James say? What does James say about our God? Let us go to God and ask. Let him ask God. If you lack wisdom, ask God why. Because he gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given him. So notice this. Two things there about God's giving of wisdom. When we go to God and we ask of him. First, James tells us that God gives generously. He is not miserly. And the idea here is that God gives with a singleness of intent. He is wholehearted. He delightfully gives to those who ask him of the things that they need. God is not a miser withholding the very thing that we need in order to stand the the trials of life. No, he gives generously. God is not like us. Amen. God is not like us. God is generous in giving to those who come to him in faith and ask him. He is generous and he is ready to provide. Peter says it this way in 2 Peter 1.3. 2 Peter 1.3, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Everything that we need for life and godliness, he gives. This is a promise of God, believer. Listen to it. Heed it. If you need something for life and godliness, go to God and ask for it. Trusting that he will be faithful to his promises. God does not reject the one who comes to him and asks out of their need. Psalm 103 describes it this way in verses 13 and 14. Psalm 103. As a father shows compassion to his children. So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say he doesn't show compassion to us because we are only dust. Right? Do you show compassion to dust? Just saying when you go and dust at home, I don't really like the dust at home, but that's, you know, that's me. Uh, <laughs> But do you show compassion? See, I show I show compassion to dust by not dusting it, right? <laughs> That's what we'll say, right? No, do you do you go out of your way to be very gentle with it as you're wiping it up? No, right? It's dust. You deal with it, you wipe it up, and what do you do with it? You throw it in the trash. Done. Boom. Over. God doesn't treat us that way. God remembers our frame. He knows we are dust. And he shows us compassion. He knows what we are. And he knows that we cannot meet the trials of life without his strength, without wisdom, without his Holy Spirit. So he gives generously when we ask of him. Sometimes our problem, brothers and sisters in Christ, is we don't ask Our failure, the the failure in the situation is not God who doesn't give to us what we need. It's us who doesn't go to God and ask for what we need. 
And spoilers, James chapter 4 talks a little bit about that. You might go read that later. It is not that God is unfaithful to his promises. Rather, we are unfaithful to ask him for the things that he promises to give us when we ask. He gives generously. He gives with integrity. And also notice the second thing there. He gives generously to all without reproach. And joined with this generosity is something else. God's giving of wisdom is without reprimand. He doesn't scold us for our need for wisdom. He doesn't scoff or belittle us in our need of him. Maybe you know somebody who's like that. Like you know that if you go and ask them something, it's something you don't know. They'll go, you don't know that? Everyone knows that. How stupid are you that you don't know that? Um, maybe you don't know somebody like that, and that's a good thing. But there are people who, who, who in their pride and haughtiness of themselves belittle other people when they come to ask them questions. God is not this way. He doesn't upbraid. He doesn't scold. He doesn't reprimand us for our need for wisdom. He does not give wisdom generously, but with a scoffing laugh like, ha, 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 you fools. No, he loves to give wisdom, and he does so without reproach. No matter how many times you go to him and ask him for wisdom, he isn't going to scold you for that. But instead, he's going to give. Right? That's what the end of verse 5 there says. It will be given him. Wisdom will be given him. Another uh, fear we might have, right, is that we might ask too much of God. We know this in a human way, right? Mankind is this way. Sometimes we fear going to the same person and asking too much of them because at some point we're going to push our limit, right? We're They're going to get to the point where they're going to say, no, stop asking me for things. I'm done with you. God is not this way. He gives generously, he gives wholeheartedly, and he gives without condemning. If it is asked for, it is received. God will give to the one who asks. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 7 to 11. Matthew 7, 7 to 11 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if a son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? And Jesus elaborates on that in the uh, Luke's account of this. He, he says, how much more will God give his Holy Spirit? And there, that being an example of the best of the good things that God could give. If God is willing to give his Holy Spirit to those who ask, how much more will he give the lesser things? Ask and received. But let's continue and see that doubt and refused. Verses 6 and 7. But let him ask in faith. So this is the condition which we are given in our asking. We have to ask in faith. We have to trust. When we go to God, we trust that he will give. We trust in his promise that we see here. That if we ask God for wisdom, he will be faithful to give it. 
So the positive part of that condition is right, ask in faith. The negative part of that is without no, with no doubting. He says that we must ask in faith and faith is not like the one who doubts, who is double-minded, who is tossed about and driven about like waves on the sea. And I would just ask you, do you trust God when you pray? Do you have faith in God when you pray? Do you trust that He is one who will give generously and without reprimanding you? Let me tell you that any problem in our prayers is not God. It's us. It's our lack of trust in God. It's our lack of faith in God who implores us to come to Him. The God who promises good gifts to us. The issue, this issue here of doubting or wavering is kind of this idea of disputing with yourself. In popular culture, right, that takes the example of the two little, the angel and the devil on the shoulder. And the angel saying, well, do the good. The devil saying, mm, do bad, right? But it's this idea of disputing, right? And so this, this idea of doubting is disputing with ourselves. We, we, we go to God and we pray, God give me wisdom. God help me. God give me grace. God do this. But when you think, ah, but do I really want wisdom? Do I really want what I just prayed for? It, will God really give it? Will he, does he even hear my prayers and will he even answer them? We have to have faith. Paul writing about Abraham receiving the word of God with faith writes this in Romans 4, 20-22. Romans 4. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced. This is what faith is. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, in the moment, if you go back to the, the story in the book of Genesis, you can see how there are times when um, Abraham doesn't doubt, he doesn't waver, but he does laugh. He says, God, I'm old. Uh, there's one point where God says, I'm gonna, you, Sarah is going to have a child. And he laughs and says, we're old. But have you seen Ishmael? He's my son too. And God reaffirms and says, no, but Sarah is going to have a child. In that moment, he may have laughed, but he believed God. He trusted God. He did not waver in his belief. He did what God commanded him to. He didn't waver. We see another example of this in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 and 19, when we, when Abraham was called to sacrifice his son Isaac. What does the book of Hebrews tell us in 11:17? By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Do we understand that about Abraham? That, that the promise was that Isaac would be the heir, the promise, 
God says, kill the promise. And Abraham believed and trusted and grew in his faith and didn't waver. We look to Abraham's faith as instruction for ourselves. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And the question, brothers and sisters, is do you believe God? I dare say our trust in God is far weaker than we would like to admit. I dare say that we are sooner to abandon our faith than to deepen in it. How often are we subject to the shifting waves of emotions, of our emotions, of our feelings? We're tossed about by the waves of trials loosed from the anchor of our soul. As one commentator suggests, God responds, though. God responds when we ask with spiritual integrity. Your prayers have spiritual integrity. Do you mean what you say? Verse 7 says, For that person, the one who doubts, who is tossed about by the waves of emotion and turmoil and questioning, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. If we ask with doubt, James is blunt. Don't think you're going to get it. Don't think that well, God will give you wisdom when you don't trust that he is good and generous and won't upbraid you. In this, brothers and sisters, we need to be honest. We need to be honest with ourselves and honest with God. We need to go to God in honesty. And it may mean we need to say like that petitioner of Jesus in the book of Mark chapter 9. Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration and there's this hubbub, there's this hullabaloo, there's this father and his son and they come to him and they say, Jesus, my son has a demon. Uh, he has fits and starts. It causes him to, to hurt himself. And I asked your disciples to heal him and they couldn't do it. Jesus, help. Pick, pick up in Mark 9. 21 through 24 and Jesus asked his father how long has this been happening to him and he said from childhood and it's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him but if you can do anything have compassion on us and help us and what does Jesus say and Jesus said to him if you can all things are possible for one who believes Immediately the child, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Perhaps our first prayer to God needs to be this. Lord God, I believe, but help my unbelief. Is the father good? Is the son compassionate? Does the Holy Spirit love? Has the triune God worked for you? For your salvation, if indeed you have believed in Christ, will God not do what he has promised? This is the fundamental question. Will not God do for you as he has promised? So ask and received, doubt and refused. And here is the question of faith and doubt. Verse 8, faith and doubt. Verse 8 says, he is a double-minded man, 
and stable in all his ways. This is the one who doubts, who goes to God, not in faith, not with spiritual integrity, not with a whole heart, not with a singular purpose. He's a double-minded man. Or the word in Greek is is literally double-souled, dual-souled, two-souled. This word, uh, the commentators think, may have even been coined by James. It's indicative of this dual nature of the one who doubts because on the one hand, he says, I trust in God enough to pray. Because here's the thing. Is there some evidence of faith if we pray? Yeah, there is, right? We wouldn't, we wouldn't do a thing we have no idea would affect anything. So there's some level of faith there, some level of trust that we would go to God and pray. But on the other hand, the person who goes to God and pray but doesn't trust in God to answer that prayer is two-souled, double-minded, unstable. Because he says, I trust in God enough to pray, but I don't trust God enough that he will answer. I trust in God to go to him and ask for wisdom, but I don't trust in God enough to say that he will actually give it. Such a person is surely unstable. And that word unstable there is this idea of a storm. Linking back to what he has already said, right? One who is tossed. Wave tossed. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. And this seems to mean not so much moral perfection, although God does call us to holiness, right? He says, be holy for I am holy. The book of Hebrews tells us that it is through holiness we will see God. But Jesus' statement here of perfection is that we will be like God is. And how is God? Wholehearted. He is, uh, he has integrity. Meaning, what he believes, what he does, what he says, what he thinks, all of these are aligned. He is of one mind and soul and body. Uh, if we could say that about God who is spirit, right? And for us, it means this, that we would be wholehearted. So if God is wholehearted, you therefore must be wholehearted as your heavenly father is wholehearted. We are not split between obeying God and obeying our passions. We are wholeheartedly devoted to God. What we say, we mean. Do you mean what you say? When you pray, do you mean it? And I ask you that genuinely. Think about that. When you pray, do you mean the words that you say? Or do you just say those things because you know they're the right thing to say? Do you say them because you've heard other people say them? And so you're just copying, you're just parroting back uh, what you've heard before. Why do you pray what you pray? And let me perhaps ask it this way. What would happen if every single thing you prayed for in the past week came to fruition in this very moment? How surprised would you be? How dismayed would you be? Do you say what you mean? And this again, this idea of wholehearted is what we do flows from a heart that loves God. And do you see how that contrasts with this idea of the two-souled man? Or in Greek, dipsukos. 
To doubt God is to act in foolishness. He is the only one who is trustworthy and keeps all his word. You can't say that of yourself. Again, think back over the past week. How many times did you promise something that you failed to keep? How many times did you commit to something that you failed to do? And, and I'm not saying you intentionally did it that way, although we do that too, right? We, we intentionally say one thing and, and knowing we're not going to do it. But how many times did life circumstances intervene where what you said you were going to do, you couldn't even accomplish because something else came up, something more important, something or another? How many promises have you failed to keep this week? And yet every promise of God, no matter how big, no matter how small, he keeps always forever. The solution is to go to the God whom you've doubted and ask for forgiveness. It's to renew your trust in him. It's to look afresh at his word and see how he is faithful time and time again. Was God faithful to Abraham? Absolutely. Did God faithfully fulfill his covenant to Abraham? Absolutely. Every time you see a rainbow, there lies the faithfulness of God. He is faithful every time, so pray to him. And maybe pray to him as that father did. I believe. Help my unbelief. At the outset, we saw how Nabal was this fool of a man who ignored the kindness of David and refused reasonable request. And the result of this foolishness was almost the loss of his life and the loss of, of his, his household. But his wise wife interceded and made good the situation. James writes to a church in need of wisdom because they are facing trials. They need wisdom to face the trials of life and stand firm. And so he exhorts these churches, these Christians, to go to the only, uh, the only one who is all wise. Go to God and ask and seek from Him that which they need. He entreats them to go in faith and receive in faith the wisdom they need for life. And faith is a central issue in this passage. God is generous and gives without reproach. He is generous and liberal in His giving of the good gift of wisdom. But do you trust Him? Do you believe Him? Do you trust that He will be faithful to that promise? Do you really believe that if you ask Him for wisdom, He won't scoff at you? Do you believe He is the good Father who gives every good and perfect gift? Brothers and sisters in Christ, you need wisdom. You need the wisdom of God to be able to navigate this world of trials. We as a church need wisdom. How are we going to be faithful to God if we don't know who God is? If we don't have His wisdom? Listen, there are tons of uh, books and resources that we could pick up and start running with. I'm sure there's how to plant a church for dummies. We need God's wisdom, though. Will we ask Him for it? What are you facing this week? What are you facing this week? And how are you going to honor God in the midst of those trials? This is why James calls you to ask for wisdom. He calls you to go to the all-wise God who gives generously and without reproach 
so that it will be given to you. So pray to God for wisdom. Pray for God for his wisdom to face the trials of life before you. Pray to him, asking him for his grace in this. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Don't ask with doubt. Don't be like that two-souled man who in one breath asks God, but in the other breath doesn't trust him to give it. Ask in faith. Ask in trust. Ask knowing that God is faithful and he loves you steadfastly. He who promises faithful, he will surely do it. And for those of you who do not trust in God, you also need wisdom from him. You need the wisdom to see that without the forgiveness of your sins, that only happens through Christ Jesus' work on the cross, that only that forgiveness is only applied to you by Christ's sacrifice. You need the wisdom to see that without that, you will die in your sins. Wisdom says this, that the life, the path that you are traveling down will result in one thing, eternal judgment. You're being cast forever into that place called hell. Yet wisdom will also teach you this, that there is one who in his love came to this earth, lived the perfect life you never could, died on the cross bearing the wrath of God for sin, and rose from the grave victorious to ascend to the right hand of God, to intercede on the behalf of his people. Jesus Christ died to do away with sin, and you could have the forgiveness of your sins if you but trust in him, if you believe in him, if you repent and turn from your sins and turn to Christ, then you too can know the, the God of all wisdom, who is generous and gives without reproach. You can be forever in his steadfast love. And so for you this morning, the call is to repent. Look to Christ Jesus and believe in him as the son of God. Ask God for a new heart, for new life, for forgiveness of your sins, for wisdom. He gives generously to all without reproach. His name is faithful and true. So seek him. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, how greatly we need you. How greatly we need your Holy Spirit. How greatly we need the wisdom that comes only from you, that comes through your Holy Spirit. Father God, how foolish we are and how, how stuck in our foolishness we are when we fail to go to you and ask of you that which we need. So Father, Give wisdom. We believe, Lord God, we believe that you are the good God of, of all creation and you are the good God who has saved us. You are the good God who sent your son to die in the, in our place to bear your wrath for our sins that we might be the righteousness of you. Father, we believe these things, and yet help our unbelief. Father, how small our prayers are. How wavering we are when we pray them to you. How, how, how unstable we are. 
Forgive us. And Lord God, may every word that passes our lips as we pray to you, may it come from a heart that trusts in you, that wants for you, that hungers and thirsts for you, that seeks you, you only. Oh God, help us. Give us wisdom. Show us your grace and steadfast love. Father, we, may we have all reason to rejoice in you always, even as we do, but even in this, that we see your good hand. We see your loving kindness. And oh God, have mercy. Have mercy on those who trust you not. Have mercy on those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. Oh, that they would believe in Christ. And oh Father, that our message to them would be be reconciled unto God. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your loving kindness, for your grace, for your mercy, for your steadfast love, for your holiness and righteousness, for the ways in which you have provided and protected us, ways in which we do not even see or understand. God of all glory, we praise you. And we thank you, not the least of which is for your precious Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.